This episode of the MGMA podcast is brought to you by Walmart Business. It's the Walmart you love, now for business. Get everything you need for your staff and patients in one place. Enjoy big savings on health and safety products, cleaning supplies, over-the-counter medications, and much more. And don't forget the break room snacks. Create a free account today and start shopping at business.walmart.com. That's business.walmart.com. Senior Fellow at the Medical Group Management Association, and I'm here today with Gary Hirschman. He's in the healthcare and life sciences practice of the law firm Epstein Becker Green. Uh, we're going to talk today on the interest of private equity investment in medical groups and the advantages of groups who are looking for a capital investment and looking at an, uh, the opportunity that they may have short-term and long-term with private equity. And we'll also talk about some of the disadvantages. Gary, welcome. And Thank you. Do you want to introduce yourself and give us your background? Sure. I've been uh, an attorney for 30 years, the last 25 of which is focused exclusively on healthcare transactions and regulatory issues, uh, representing physicians and other healthcare providers for that entire 25-year period. Right now, we're working a lot with physician groups all over the country on advising them on transactions with hospitals, private equity companies, national companies, and just other strategic transactions for physicians to position themselves for the future. Good. Get a little bit of background. Uh, we're seeing mergers, acquisitions among hospitals. We're seeing health systems get larger and acquiring other systems. We've known from physician groups for years how hospitals have been acquiring physician practices and even to the point now where only a minority of physicians, less than half, are actually self-employed or part of the medical groups where the doctors own the group. So what what are you seeing from your perspective on what has happened with physician transactions over the past years? So over the past three to five years, there's been a 20 to 30 percent per year increase in the number of physician groups that enter into major strategic transactions like sales to hospitals, private equity, and big national companies. And we're seeing that trend because practicing medicine and all aspects of healthcare right now are extremely complex. Physicians more and more are being pressed to provide high-quality, cost-efficient care, population health, value-based payment programs, coordinating care, and so on. And it takes a lot out of them. And they're looking to join bigger organizations that have more capital to invest in these types of functions to help them. I think most physician groups and their administrators are well aware of hospitals' interest in purchasing the practice and the benefit the hospital is going to receive. Let's talk a little bit about the alternative, uh, especially private equity. First, why would private equity be interested in taking their money or the client's money and putting it into a medical group? What, what's in it for the private equity firm, and then what's in it for the medical group? So that's a good question. Private equity firms are looking for ways to make phenomenal returns three to five times returns in anywhere from three to seven years. Let's stop for a second. (laughs) 
So they're looking at 350% return on investment. Dollars. I don't know the math, <laughs> but but they do. But there have been a number of private equity companies that have developed platforms in certain physician specialties and have exited those investments after three years or less. Yeah. This is an opportunity for the practice and for the doctor owners. But the private equity firm, this is an investment. And this is a financial investment they're looking at. But also, there may be some real advantages for the group itself. What would uh, a private equity firm do for a medical group that a hospital wouldn't? So what a private equity firm would do is basically say, we're investing in an MSO or administrative services platform to help you succeed in your practice, to make you more efficient, and to make your practice more profitable. And that means investing in infrastructure, advanced EMR, data analytics, care coordination capabilities, and also to gain economies of scale in all of these things, including expansion, expanding into new ancillary services, adding ancillary service locations, adding practice locations through organic growth, starting it on their own, or through acquiring other practices so that potentially quadruple or even grow to a larger extent the practice all on the same corporate infrastructure and capital resources. In fact, I think something I've heard, a private equity firm is much more interested in growth in their investment, not only on financial return, but also seeing the organizations they invest in succeed, perhaps more so than a hospital which is more interested in its inpatient business and using the doctors to secure their traditional source of business. That's a great point of comparison. I mean, hospitals just look at the world differently. This is a Wall Street view of medical practices, which at first blush makes people cringe a bit. But there have been a lot of success stories. And uh, you're right. These investors that are focused on a particular specialty as opposed to a hospital just worried about dozens or hundreds of doctors and various specialties in an IPA or ACO or whatever you want to call it. This is really much more growth-focused capital investment and growth and growth of profitability. Yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit how we structure the deal and then talk a little bit about post-investment. What's, what happens to the doctors? So let's first look at the deal. Money becomes an important element for everybody. You have an, an initial investment in the practice, and part of that investment is going to be rolled over as equity. So we'll talk a little bit about the concept of the investment from the outside private equity firm. Some of it is retained, is paid to the doctor current owners based on their valuation of the practice. And what, what's... What, what, what happens with the rest of the dollars? So what happens is, let's take a hypothetical $10 million valuation. And most of these groups are much higher than that, but, but, but just for simplicity purposes. If there's a $10 million valuation, the doctors would get hypothetically 70% in cash. So that comes to them mostly or sometimes entirely as capital gains treatment which is favorable tax treatment. And the $3 million that's not given to them in cash is provided to them in rollover equity. So they are rolling the equity into the private equity platform, the MSO, let's call it, so that that $3 million is going to grow and get a return on investment, just like the other money that the private equity firm puts into the deal. So if the private equity firm gets a five times return on its investment, then that $3 million investment could turn into $15 million in three to seven years. Yeah, which means that the doctors 
who originally were the shareholder owners, they're a minority owner in the future. Yes. In other words, they're not going to have 50% ownership or more, but that minority still grows with the organization. Yeah, it grows as the organization grows. Now, if new acquisitions of other practices in the same specialty are provided rollover equity, there is some dilution of that equity. But in the end, as the pie gets bigger, as the EBITDA or profitability gets bigger, so does the multiple and so does the valuation of the enterprise as a whole. So these deals are structured in a way where even if there is dilution of that rollover equity, there's still a much bigger pie and a much bigger return in the future. You know, you use a word here, EBITDA. So it's earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. Some people roughly say that it's the cash flow of a practice, which is similar to the profit of a practice, but it's excess cash flow. And the way EBITDA is really created in a medical practice is through normalizing the salary of the shareholder doctors, the owner, the physicians who are owners of the practice. When their income, when their compensation gets normalized to a lower number, but it's still a market number, for a physician of their specialty and experience, the difference between what they earned as an owner, profiting on other employed physicians and mid-levels and ancillaries, that difference goes into EBITDA. So if a doctor were making $800,000 a year and their salary were to be normalized down to $500,000 a year, that extra $300,000 is considered EBITDA. And if there's 10 doctors with a similar situation, you have $3 million of EBITDA right there. Yeah. And actually, this also says from an investment banker perspective, they're investing in the best practices, ones that the doctors are already earning much higher than market compensation as an indication of the value of that practice. Right. So one of the rules of thumb, although it's not always followed, is the normalization of a shareholder physician's compensation is anywhere from 30 to 40% of the collections off their back for their professional services. So if their professional services yielded $1.2 million of collections, it would be normalized down to, let's say, roughly one-third or 400000 And if they were bringing in $900,000 for their collections for their professional services, it would be normalized down to 300000 Sometimes it's a little higher or a little lower. So let's talk about, you know, you have to look at doctors who are in early career, late career. Why would they be interested in the investment? Um, I think a doctor, I can see a late career physician. They're trying to look at how do they actually get a return from their sweat equity that they put into the practice. So let's talk first about late entry. And then we'll talk about those doctors who are earlier in their careers who are owners they may not have built as much sweat equity as some of the older physicians who've been in practice for years. So first, you know, what's in it for everybody? Yeah, so I'm going to go to the top three, and I'm going to do them in reverse order. <laughs> so number three is risk. There is risk. The healthcare industry is transforming, and it's directly impacting physician practices. It's becoming harder and harder to compete value-based contracts, risk-based contracts. A lot of doctors have uncertainty. Are they going to be doing as well five years from now, or do they kind of see things starting to, to go in a downward trend? So 
taking some of that risk off the table is number three. Number two is capital, investing capital, a source of capital to expand and to gain the capabilities that they need in order to succeed in the changing environment. Data analytics, advanced EMR, care management. The number one reason is a thing that sometimes is overlooked. Not just the money they get on the sale of their practice, but to go up 10,000 feet above that. And the concept is monetization of their medical practice as one of their assets. One of their, their assets like their home and whatever they've put away in their retirement plan. That is an asset that many doctors, whether they're late career or mid-career, they've worked their butts off for 10 years, 20 years, sometimes more. And what do they have if they retire? And the truth is nowadays there are not really lucrative buyouts in uh, a medical practice. Just it's a owned gold by, watch, right? Right. It's, it's a gold watch. It's, it's capital account, sometimes capital account plus trailing receivables. But it's not the real value of the practice. If there's investors that are willing to value that practice at $40 million and there's 10 doctors, technically that practice has 10 doctors who are shareholders equally. That's $4 million a doctor. But, but they don't get that. So this, it actually monetize, corporatizes and monetizes the value of the practice, takes a majority of chips off the table to, to deal with future risk and uncertainty. It could be invested in their retirement, and then they keep the remaining amount as rollover equity going forward, which likely, by the way, will grow, like we said before, just like the private equity investors' capital. So should a practice be sold to private equity company that the valuation of the practice uh, that the doctors will receive, uh, you know, for example, uh, about a third of the sale price would be retained as their future shares, as they'll be 30% shareholders, and they will then get a lump sum of money for the remaining valuation on the sale. And in the future, the doctors may take a reduced annual compensation because they're now paid market as opposed to getting a higher than market compensation level, but they already have that sizable capital payment that, that occurred earlier. They have that sizable payment, and when they retire, they will be bought out. That equity will be bought out at fair market value. They're 30%. Right. Now, there is, I want to clear one thing up, which is a little bit unique about private equity investing. That rollover equity does not get a return. All of the money, all of the profits get reinvested. Nobody takes profits out through distributions. It all gets reinvested. So the only way to realize that rollover equity value is upon retirement or upon an exit by the private equity company when they sell to another private equity company or a national health care company. And we'll talk about that's some of the downside. If a practice were interested in uh, pursuing a, a strategic affiliation with a private equity firm and the sale of the practice, uh, what should they be thinking about? <laughs> what do they need to do? First of all, there's three things that are very important. Number one is to get their house in order, to really make sure that they're, that they're acting in a compliant way, that their billing and coding is spot on, that their documentation is really good, because they're going to, you know, anybody that's going to potentially invest in them or acquire a majority interest, 
is going to do deep dive diligence. So that's number one. They need to really deal with, you know, speak to their accountants and lawyers and bring in consultants to make sure that they're squeaky clean compliance wise. Number two, they they should bring in, in addition to an experienced lawyer who can advise them on the process, an investment banker who basically would advise them, who would run a competitive process to see all interested parties to basically canvas the private equity market. Uh, they know the companies that are looking for physician groups in d- different specialties to get a real competitive process going to get the most offers from different private equity firms, and that would be very helpful. The third thing, which is really important, is that if they decide to go through this process and decide to engage their lawyer and their investment banker and get several offers, culture is important. It's not all about the money. Monetization conceptually is important, but the difference between you know, a $60 million valuation and a $58 million valuation is not as important as understanding who your partner is. And although the investor is going to do deep dive due diligence on your practice to try to find anything problematic going on, likewise, when there's several offers on the table that all seem very interesting and acceptable, the physicians need to do reverse diligence on the proposers. The, the private equity companies that are making offers narrow it down to three or four and look at who they are, meet them, make sure they're, they seem like reasonable people, that they have a lot of experience in uh, private equity investing in healthcare and in particular in physician services. And I, would, I tell my clients, go and talk to those doctors. If you're a gastroenterology group that's being uh, approached by several firms, through a process and bids, go back, look at those firms. Maybe they invested in dermatology or ophthalmology groups or anesthesiology groups several years ago. Talk to those doctors. Ask about how it's like being partners with this investor group. And, you know, are they really letting you do your own thing clinically? And are, you know, are they really just serving that back office support function? Just find out about the people and the culture. I think the critical element is... What is the quality of the management team the private equity firm is in, and who are they? Well, that's very interesting because it's not uncommon for private equity firms to bring in some management experts. But I do have to tell you, though, when a private equity firm decides to go into orthopedics, say, they're going to look for an orthopedic group that has a really solid corporate infrastructure and management team. And in most cases, that's what they're investing in. And they're going to use that management team to take this going forward and to grow it. Um, But yeah, that being said, it's not uncommon that if some members of that team, like maybe the CFO or maybe the HR executive, isn't pulling the weight and can't handle the growth and expansion and that's going to happen and that, that is starting to happen, they do need to bring in experts and, or maybe even at the CEO level too. Yeah, that's right. And again, this is a, you have sold the practice to someone else. And I think there are ways to structure for clinical independence, but you're part of a larger healthcare organization now. And I think that's something that many practices, part of the consideration of when they sell their entity, their organization, whether it was to a hospital or to a private equity firm, that they're going to give up aspects of their ownership 
to include their strategic planning and their pro so many of their processes, and they're going to have to adopt the culture of, the, of their new of the new purchasing organization. So choosing the choosing that company wisely is critical. Yeah, and by the way, not only do private equity firms on an initial mm -hmm. acquisition in a particular specialty sector look at the management team, but they look at the physicians. Because those physicians are going to be the face of the organization. And those physicians leaders are going to be the ones that talk to the other groups to try to get them to come in. So, yeah, I, I was going to say that that for the most part, you're, you're yielding the back office responsibilities right. and decisions. But in some respects, the doctors are involved in, in vetting other groups, making sure they're good groups too. But the clinical care is usually not affected. Yeah. That's not what they're there to yeah. change. Especially now that private equity has made investments in physician groups and healthcare for years, that you know, looking for a, pri a private equity firm who has an interest in a medical group, look at their track track record. Is this their first acquisition? It probably won't be. Right. You know. So how, you know who have been their other acquisitions and what has happened with those practices? Oh, I've been in the room where the leaders of the physician group have asked for specifics on what was the rate of return of their other investments mm -hmm. and for the private equity firms to actually show on a piece of paper that they don't want to give <laughs> just to look at to show, oh, we're still holding this investment. This one we exited three years ago got 5.8 multiple you know, of our investment return and, and, and look at their other investments in the past and, and how they realized on them in physician services and other healthcare areas. Yeah. Well, we're talking about part, basically partner selection. So what other factors you talk about? Background, history, financial stability. Uh, what else would a, would a physician group be interested in in finding a private equity partner? Which one to choose? Yeah, you know, again, you, you, you've got to look at their culture. And, and the word culture is a little wishy-washy, but, but what I mean by culture is their approach to business, expansion, operations. And by going out and talking to other doctors that have gone with this platform in different specialties a year or two or three years ago is, is very important. You, you know, they could say everything they want across the table in nice PowerPoint slides and, and otherwise – but where the rubber hits the road is is in the diligence and speaking with people who have partnered with them before. Was it a good marriage? Yeah, yeah. And in fact, maybe that leads into perhaps a, a, another topic, which are what are the drawbacks? <laughs> you know, uh, this is not all opportunity. There are some negatives as well. Yeah, so, I think I think the biggest negatives are not being involved as much or at all in the business of medicine. That's really going to be passed off to the private equity flat platform, the MSO, if you will, the administrative services organization function. So there's going to be less input in that regard. I don't think there's any impact from my experience on clinical care and clinical decision-making. But one of the biggest negatives is that this group, where you spent a lot of time doing reverse diligence on them and their culture and their performance is likely going to sell in three to seven years, on average five years. And we've seen some go in two to three years. And that's going to be sold usually to another 
larger private equity investor. It could be to a larger national company like an Optum or Envision or Team Health. So you're not going to have any say on that, but you have to think that if the doctors aren't happy with the selection of their next partner, that next partner is going to smoke that out in meetings and they want to make sure if they're going to invest even more than the first private equity fund invested, that that there's a connection and buy-in from the doctors. But again, technically, there's not control over that. Yeah. Now, now, of course, that second resale does generate additional revenue for the original shareholders who maintain that minority equity share. Yes, it does. It, it it's It's another liquidity event. And sometimes, even though they only have 30% or even less if it's been diluted of ownership, it's not uncommon for on that exit or that liquidity event, the exit of the first private equity investor, for the physicians to get the same or more than they got when they sold the majority of their practice. That's that's happened many times. And it's because... It's not just a Cinderella story. It's not a Cinderella. Yeah, but, and everybody gains from that growth. Now, right. if they didn't do their job and it doesn't grow... It's not going to have high valuation on resale. Exactly. Yeah. And there is a risk. Everyone, you know, talks about could this be a private equity bubble that will burst down the road? But this is being done a lot differently and a lot smarter than the physician practice management craze of the late 90s, which, as we all know, busted it, it, in a big was, way. It was a bubble. <laughs> that was a bubble. Folks think that it's being done smarter and better this time around. But, you know, there's differences of opinion on that. But yeah, if, if if a private equity firm has invested in building up a bunch of practices, rolling them up, you know, fifty million of their own cash, one hundred and fifty of debt, and maybe another thirty million of rollover equity, it's very possible that they want to get, you know, three to five times that money out. But the private equity, I'm, I'm sorry, the the rollover equity will also get the benefit of that higher valuation. It increases proportion. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Excellent discussion. You know, if a physician practice, you know, the, you know, if they have an interest in looking for capital through private equity, where should they look? You know, I mean, this is not something that most physicians are aware of or most practice executives. They don't know where to go. So how do you find interested private equity capital? Well, the, the best advice I can provide physicians is don't do it yourself. You've never done this before. Physicians in these multiple sectors are probably getting unsolicited phone calls from private equity companies that want to enter into a transaction with them, and maybe even investment bankers that want to advise them on on such a transaction. But the best advice I could provide is don't take those calls. Don't proceed until you first step engage, hire an investment banker. An investment banker is not the investor. It's really just a, an advisor that is like the broker that positions the practice and writes a great summary of the practice and then markets the practice to all the interested investor community um, who are have indicated interest in physician services. And that way, it's a competitive process and you get the best, most comprehensive responses of interest. And, and different offers of different investors with different cultures. And that puts you in the best position to get 
the highest valuation and, and the most selection to, to match the culture. So I would recommend that they in, interview at least three healthcare-focused private uh, in, investment banking firms and, and engage one of them to hold their hand through the process, along with accountants and attorneys who have done this before and, and understand this that. This is not an area where you want to be the Lone Ranger and do it yourself. No, and there's some physicians. You know, listen, physicians are extremely bright, and they've built practices and are, are very smart, some of them financially, and have built very valuable practices. But this is something that they don't have experience in, and sometimes they think that they're, very, that they're smart enough to do it, uh, but but they're they're doing a disservice to themselves and their partners if they don't bring in uh, a seasoned investment banker after interviewing a few of them and finding the right fit on who their advisor is going to be. Any last comments you'd like to make to practice executives? Is this for them? Is it not for them? What what would you what would you think would be some thoughts? So my my advice in a nutshell: this is not right for everybody, but don't come to that conclusion before you become fully informed. So my advice is to explore what's out there before you say, this is not for me. And I do think that almost half of the practices I've spoken with and advised have decided this is not right for them. But they do it with their eyes wide open, understanding all the options, what the value of their practice would be, how transactions would be structured before they decide, I'm not doing that. So that's my best advice on that. Very good. Gary, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate the insights. I learned a lot today. Thank you. Thank you, Dave. Bye-bye. The popular buzzword we've been seeing everywhere is AI. But what we all want to know is how we can implement and use it to our advantage when it comes to improving margins, accelerating cash flow, and optimizing staff performance. There's a one-stop shop using cloud-based predictive analytics. MGMA Analytics is your AI-enabled tool that upscales technology you've already been paying for so you can silo your disparate systems and make data-backed business decisions. Visit mgma.com slash analytics and see how AI can revolutionize your finances and operations. Again, visit mgma.com slash analytics today.